beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is truth? We read about Jesus on trial in the gospel according to Matthew. In the gospel according to John, there's more. And there we find Pilate asking that question, what is truth? The truth was on trial. On trial in more ways than one, wasn't it? Jesus is the truth. And the trial he endured was nothing more than a long list of lies and false witnesses. The truth versus the lie. So Pilate asked, what is truth? Who knows why he was asking that question? Did he really want to know the answer? Or was he just annoyed and cynical? Whatever the reason, his question is today more important than ever. We live in a world that denies that we can know truth. Some say truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. But what are you supposed to do with a statement such as that? All truth is relative. Is that relative too? then why listen to it? All truth is relative. Is that an absolute truth? Then there is such thing as an absolute truth. Relativism doesn't work. The skeptic says we should doubt all truth. But as someone else says, is the skeptic skeptical of skepticism? Does he doubt his own truth claim? Then why pay attention to skepticism? The agnostic says you can't know the truth. But doesn't that just fall in on itself too? Defeat itself? Because even the agnostic claims to know one truth, you can't know the truth. A pluralist says that all truth claims are equally valid. Again, how in the world can that be? Can these two both be true? One doctor says you have cancer and the other that you don't. Can they both be true at the same time? Of course, behind it, we hear our world's desire for what it calls tolerance. Let's be open-minded, different truths. But there's a difference between someone's opinion and someone's truth. It all begins to remind us that there must be such thing as truth. And it's something that's outside of us. Ask the questions. Where are we from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Can the answers to those questions be one way for me and another for you? Can I have been created by God and you evolved over millions of years? There is truth. Even in absolute truth, And it is found in God's word. God is truth, the Bible teaches us. He is the God of truth. And this truth we find in his word. And in the word. Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He isn't just one who speaks truth. 
who shares truth. He is the very source of truth. He is the truth. Jesus was claiming that he is God. And in the ninth commandment, then, God is calling us to be like him. Be holy as I am holy, he says repeatedly to his people. And in the same way we can say with the ninth commandment, be people of the truth, because I am truth. That's the way we're going to look at the ninth commandment this afternoon. I summarize that message as follows. God's people are to be people of the truth, because he is truth. We'll hear, first of all, how this truth is convicting. Secondly, how this truth is liberating. And thirdly, how this truth is transforming. God's people are to be people of the truth because He is truth. And this truth is, first of all, convicting. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Those are the words of the ninth commandment, as we heard. What do we see when we look into the mirror of the ninth commandment? God has a word about true versus false witness. Or if we wanted to summarize it even more, the truth versus the lie. Certainly the first application of the ninth commandment is in the whole world of the courts. That's where you find witnesses who testify truthfully or falsely. Our catechism recognizes that as one of the first applications too, as we read in Lord's Day 43. In court... And everywhere else we read. So yes, in court, but then also everywhere else. And so we may say more generally, the ninth commandment addresses the battle between the truth and the lie. To call it a battle is important. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 reflected specifically on the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, but his point there in Romans 7 applies to them all. We know the good that God commands of us, and we might even desire to do it, but evil is right there with us. There is this war being waged, he says. That's why he can say elsewhere that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And who do they answer to? Who are those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? They are Satan and all his hosts, demons and devils and dark dominions. Satan, whom Jesus called a liar. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar And the father of lies. John 8 verse 44. Then the mirror of the ninth commandment exposes him. Because false witnesses can only come from him. He is the father of lies. That's his native language as the NIV puts it. That's why Lord's Day 43 says, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works. When we lie and deceive and gossip and slander, we are speaking his language. We're engaged in devilish activity. 
an activity he's been engaged in since the beginning. You only need to read Genesis 3 to see the truth of that. First, he plants seeds of doubt in the woman's mind. Did God really say that you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Don't we do that sometimes? Exaggerate something to make it sound worse than it really is. That's what you call twisting words. And shortly after that came the bald-faced lie, you will not surely die. Hadn't God said the exact opposite? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then when God says you shall not bear false witness, we are called to war. We're called to fight against the devil, the father of lies, in his unceasing attacks. He loves nothing better than to hear deceit and lying pass our lips. He rubs his hands, so to speak, together. Now you're talking. Didn't Peter say that to Ananias too? Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan isn't just a figment of the imagination. Someone dreamed up to scare people into believing. He and his work are very real. Sometimes we forget the reality of this spiritual warfare that we're fighting. The realm of angels and demons is a dimension that we're not often in tune with. Yet the ninth commandment convicts us, it's true, you're at war. Language war. But the devil and his host aren't alone in this, are they? We're not just fighting a battle against the father of lies, also his offspring. When God cursed the serpent in the beginning, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And the serpent's offspring aren't just demons and devils. It's all who give themselves over to the serpent. Genesis 4, we read that enmity right away. And it's not just children of Eve against demons. It's Abel being killed by Cain. It's the children of Seth calling on the name of the Lord and the descendants of Lamech boasting in their wickedness. It's when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So the battle against the lie isn't only against the father of lies, it's also his offspring, the world. And what a world we live in. The lie is everywhere. We can't paint them all with the same brush, I know, but certainly many in our governing authorities do not set a good example. Broken promise after broken promise. And then lies are used to cover up lies, and it keeps growing. Much advertising that we see is rather deceitful. Magazines or tabloids are filled with the latest gossip and slander. Good names and reputations are being destroyed by false accusations. Do we remain unaffected by that? One commentator uses the old comparison to the frog in the kettle. 
The water heats up slowly without him realizing until it's too late. Our culture is heating up. The further it strays from the God of truth, the more the lie holds power. Are we frogs in the kettle? Do we notice the impact it has on us? The ninth commandment convicts us again. There's a war going on. And not just one out there, is it? Ananias couldn't say to Peter, Satan made me do it. When our children come back from the park and lie about what happened there, they can't say the neighbor kids made me do it. It's not just out there. It's in here too. In the walls of the church. Yes, Ananias was a member of the church. A hypocrite, you might say. Not really a member of the church. Perhaps. But what about Peter in our Bible reading? Three times he said, I don't know the man. And no, he also couldn't say, Satan made me do it. Or it was those Roman soldiers that are rubbing off on me. No, he went outside and wept bitterly because he knew it came from his own heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our enemies aren't just the devil and the world, but our own flesh too. When we look in the mirror of the ninth commandment, we are convicted of that. Just listen again to the summary in our Lord's Day 43. I must not give false testimony against anyone. And did you notice the first word? I. I must not give false testimony against anyone. This is not just a generic answer. It is again intensely personal. Exposing, convicting of me. I must not give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit. And notice the word all. I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. Who of us sitting here this afternoon or standing here can listen to a list like that and not be convicted? False testimony, twisting words, gossip, slander, condemning someone unheard. That is when you don't go to verify their story, hear the other side. It's all a question of the tongue, what we say. Maybe not just with the tongue specifically, but all that we say. Through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram too. It's amazing what people dare to say behind the anonymity of their computer screen. Have we never? Who can tame the tongue, James asks. Are we going to raise our hands to say, I have, thank you very much? If we will, we're lying to ourselves. John writes in 1 John 1 verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Oh, maybe he will say, sure, I sin, but not there. Who can tame the tongue? It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue, James says. Isn't Peter a prime example of that? Peter, who was Christ's boldest disciple, eager to stand up for him, bursting out with that brilliant confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then only a short time later, I don't know the man. James says too, with the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Isn't that Peter? Yes, the canons of Dort says about Peter, because of this, saints may fall into serious sins. Indeed, serious sins. Lying, gossip, slander is no trivial matter. It's nothing less than a denial of the God of truth and of Christ, who is the truth. Lies destroy trust. What kind of foundation is that to build a relationship on? Deceit, gossip, slander, condemning rashly, do these come out of our mouths? What's living in our hearts? Even just once is enough to leave us condemned. Yes, condemned. That's the revelation that John sees. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. All liars. When God reveals himself as the God of truth in the ninth commandment, that is convicting, isn't it, beloved? When Jesus stood there before Pilate on trial, it wasn't really Jesus on trial, was it? Pilate and all the world were on trial. What will you do with the innocent one? What will you do with the truth? Then in a strange twist, it wasn't only Christ who was convicted, but the world of sin. And yet in that very moment, the truth also became most liberating. That's our second point. In John 8 verse 32, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They were confused. We are offspring of Abraham, they said, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Then Jesus had answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. They still didn't get it. They didn't see that by nature we are enslaved to sin. The flesh is in captivity. Didn't the first point convict us of that? But when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And that truth we won't find in ourselves, only outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. 
Because later, as we heard already, he would say, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that changes our understanding of those words. When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That's not first the truth in concept, in the abstract, in theory, if you will, however you want to put it. It's the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth will set you free. Then the ninth commandment doesn't only convict us, it also drives us to seek the truth outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. We are directed to Jesus Christ crucified. Crucified as the death sentence for the trial that he was under. Crucified so that he could set us free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The truth is liberating. What a trial that was there at the turn of history. Today we sometimes bemoan the state of our justice system. The courts are full and the wheels of justice, they turn so slowly. And what happens there sometimes leaves you shaking your head. In the National Post, Christy Blatchford often follows court cases, writing in her own pointed style. I recall once where she was following and I was following through her the court case of a native woman, the victim of sexual assault. She describes her as a simple woman who was completely baffled by the proceedings and dealings and inadequacies of the court she has to sit under. What a farce sometimes. Thankfully, it's not always like that. It was, in the case of Jesus' trial, a farce. There's a whole list of things that went wrong. First, it was Annas breaking Jewish laws by holding court in his house, striking a defendant who was still innocent until proven guilty. Then it was off to Caiaphas, and the list continues. The trial was really held in secret. It happened at night. It involved a bribery. No one was called for Jesus' defense. The requirement for two to three witnesses couldn't be met. Only many false witnesses until finally two came forward who said the same about the temple being destroyed in three days. What kind of a charge was that? They carried out the death penalty against the man on trial the same day. All of this was forbidden by Jewish law. And still Caiaphas charged him with blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. The whole thing was a sham. And for the most part, Jesus remained silent. But it wasn't over there. The Jewish council said Jesus had to die, but they had no legal right to carry out the death penalty. So they brought him to the Roman authorities on trumped-up charges that he was turning the people against Caesar. Lies and more lies. Pilate saw through it all. He declared him innocent. He washed his hands of this man. And still condemned him to death. Every kind of false witness and slander and deceit and treachery came to bear at Jesus' trial. And he was silent. Why? So that the truth could set us free. 
He took every lie, every gossip, every slander, every false witness, every rash condemnation on himself in silence. So that we could be free. And free indeed. That wasn't just at the trial from Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the Jews gathered around and the false witnesses that came forward. No, he bore our sin against the ninth commandment too. Think even of Peter again. Luke adds to the scenario, the situation as he describes it. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He knew what Peter had just done. Deny him three times. Brashly lie to those who were pressing him on his relationship with Jesus. Even Peter's sin, Christ took on himself to set him free. Free when we abide in him, when his word abides in us, when the truth lives in us. Isn't the truth so liberating, brothers and sisters, even our tongues are washed in the blood of Christ. Maybe you do that as parents. If you catch your children using foul language sometimes, a little soap on the tongue is a tasty lesson. Such a tongue needs to be washed. And we have been washed. No human being can tame the tongue, but in the sacrifice of Christ, it is cleansed. Oh, not that every sin is removed. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We've been liberated by God's grace in Jesus. So then our prayer is with David in Psalm 141, as we'll sing later. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Help me, in other words, as I wage war against the devil, against the world, and my own flesh. In my fight for the truth. And then when we hear, then we hear Christ's answer to that prayer. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. John 14 verse 16. The spirit of truth. So he is known. Then through the spirit of truth. The truth is also transforming. That's our third point. As much as the ninth commandment convicts us of our sin and directs us to Christ crucified for our sin, it points us in the way of thankfulness. Paul writes in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. Also in light of this commandment, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What that is in light of the ninth commandment our Lord's Day summarizes nicely. In court and everywhere else, everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. I must love the truth. Filled with a love for what Christ has done in His grace, in my heart, that's what will come out of my mouth. If the truth abides in you, the truth will come out of you. Will it not? 
No, not perfectly, but increasingly so. Progress, not perfection, from one degree of glory to the next. Christ, the truth in us, in the presence of the Spirit of truth, must be transforming. So what does that look like? Loving the truth by speaking it and confessing it honestly. It starts already early, doesn't it? With the boys and girls. Do you love the truth or the lie? How about the stories the boys and girls tell about the things that have happened, about what your friends did? Are they honest stories, truthful stories? What about the things you talk about with them when you're out with them or chatting with them on whatever social media you use? When you talk to your mom and dad or about your mom and dad? Or you young people, when you're out partying together, what do you talk about? Is your talk being transformed by the truth in the spirit of truth? Or do you talk big? Or talk honestly. The adults too, when we visit together. Do we spend an evening together talking about the latest gossip in another's life? Or do we turn that around to say, I don't want any part of that. Let's instead talk of how we can build him or her up. Yes, that does mean that there are times that what may be true doesn't need to be said. We hear that expression sometimes, well, I'm the kind of guy that just says it like it is. Isn't honesty the best principle? Honesty, yes. But speaking the truth in love, Paul says. Ephesians 4 verse 15. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Saying it like it is, isn't always building up. So perhaps we could instead brainstorm about how we could build up so-and-so. Encourage them. Defend their name. How poisonous it is for the atmosphere among brothers and sisters when they give in to lying and deceit and everything that's associated with it. But what a blessing when brothers and sisters encourage each other. When they speak up for each other and they speak well of each other. When they make an effort to communicate well with each other in this spirit of truth and understanding. That counts for all. Boys, girls, young people, young adults, seniors. How beautiful when you hear one another speaking up for one another. Rather than tearing down. Then we get to see and hear and experience the transforming power of the spirit of truth. Our washing in Christ's blood and the work of the spirit of truth. Lead us to grow in holiness. To a renewed love for God and for His Son, Jesus Christ, and to live in obedience to all His commandments. Also, this ninth commandment that reveals to us our God of truth. His truth convicts us. Doesn't it, beloved brothers and sisters? Salvation may not and will not and cannot be found in ourselves. We're fighting a battle that we'll never win on our own. 
But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, He is the truth. We may come to the Father through Him, because He has set us free, and when He sets us free, we are free indeed. So we will believe in Him, cling to Him, love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. And then we may begin to experience how His truth transforms us, changes us, and prepares us for the day of glory at His return. Amen.